tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. It had all fallen apart because of the fish sauce. It was no use. The German embassy of 968 to the great city of Constantinople, the city we know today as Istanbul, a last-ditch attempt to forge a peace between the German king and Byzantine emperor was destined for failure because of fish sauce. There was nothing to be done. Liutprand, bishop of the Italian city of Cremona and official ambassador for his German majesty, King Otto I, just couldn't stomach the stuff. He had only been in Constantinople, capital of Byzantium, for a few weeks. But already he had had enough of the sauce to last a lifetime. Every dish came soaking in it. Even when he fled to the embassy, claiming tiredness or a stomach ache, there was no escaping the ever-present sauce. Liu Prand even had a sneaking suspicion that the emperor was taking a perverse pleasure in his hatred of the stuff. Every time Leoprand had to miss a dinner at the imperial table, the generous emperor would send the ambassador food, refusing to let Leoprand miss out on the delicacies of the banquet. Courtiers would leave dish after dish at the door of the embassy, each and every one swimming in fish sauce. At this rate, Leoprand feared he would starve before he ever got back to Italy. We know of Liuprand's trials and tribulations with fish sauce in 10th century Byzantium, thanks to his surviving report to Otto I, titled simply, The Embassy. Sent to Constantinople to arrange a marriage between the German and Byzantine monarchies, Liuprand's mission was a diplomatic disaster from start to finish. Not merely a constant struggle with the Byzantine love of fish sauce, Every meal was a trial for Liuprand, who was, shall we say, unimpressed by the dining traditions of Constantinople. In letters back to the German king, he described imperial meals as drunkards' gatherings, foul and repulsive. As an ambassador, he felt slighted any time he sat down to dine with the emperor, Nikiforis Phokas. Seated so far down the table, Liuprand could barely see the emperor, let alone be able to talk with him about any proposed marriage alliance. 
To make matters worse, he was seated further away from the emperor than any other ambassador. Even though Bulgarians, he complained, were closer than he was to the head of the table. As Leopold wrote, that the German ambassador was to be treated in such a manner was downright insulting, and further proof that Byzantium knew nothing of manners. Thankfully, Leopold's writing is not our only record of medieval Byzantine cuisine. Although you'd never know it from his embassy in 968, the Constantinople Leopold visited was one of the largest, most cosmopolitan, and richest food-centric cities in medieval Europe, a home of ancient culinary traditions and rituals reliant on products from all over the known world. And, although it may be hard to believe, Leopold knew this. As we'll find out, there's much more to Leopold's experiences in Constantinople than a well-developed revulsion towards fish sauce. Today on the feast, we'll explore the medieval culinary world of the Byzantine Empire and learn about the complex traditions of the imperial court. We'll try to figure out what exactly had put Leoprand in such a bad mood about Constantinople's cuisine. Maybe it had something to do with medieval politics. Just what was an Italian bishop doing as the German ambassador anyway? We'll reveal why Leoprand's aversion to fish sauce was more than just a simple seafood allergy, linked to one of the most influential moments of its time, the fall of the Roman Empire. Stick with us, it's gonna get fishy. Although you might never know it from reading Leoprand, Constantinople was one of the largest richest, and most cosmopolitan cities in the medieval world. A political and economic powerhouse connecting Europe and Asia and dominating Mediterranean trade, Constantinople was home to over 500,000 people in the medieval era, when comparably, Rome at the same time could barely claim a tenth of that population. Constantinople was the beating heart of the mighty Byzantine Empire home to countless jeweled palaces and ornate cathedrals, where chariot races still drew hundreds of thousands of spectators, and where rival teams commanded the same kind of fierce loyalties that you would expect today from maybe Yankees or Real Madrid fans. The imperial family, the emperor along with his wife and children, resided in a sprawling palatial complex at the very heart of the city next to the ancient Hippodrome and beautiful Hagia Sophia Church. All physical reminders of the city's cherished origins as a capital of the Roman Empire, founded in the 4th century by Emperor Constantine, who had thoughtfully named the city after himself. Taking a stroll around 10th century Constantinople, one was reminded of the city's proud heritage at every turn. Triumphal arches commemorating military victories interspersed with beautiful icons, sacred paintings of Christian saints, evidence of the empire's deep-seated piety, and, of course, the sturdy tripartite walls that encircled the entire city. Built by the Roman emperor Theodosius in the 5th century, the walls had kept the city safe for at least 500 years. Reminded of their connections to ancient Rome at every turn, 
The people of Constantinople, from the street vendors to the emperor himself, understandably saw themselves as Roman and called themselves such. Now, although modern historians often use the term Byzantine or Byzantium to describe the medieval empire based in Constantinople, try using that term with anyone residing in the city in the 10th century, and they'd look at you like you had two heads. No, they were proud Romans, faithfully maintaining the traditions and customs of their noble ancestors. Which, of course, brings us back to the fish sauce. Because really, nothing was as Roman as fish sauce. Most commonly known as garum or liquamen, fish sauce was beloved by the Roman Empire. Pliny had once referred to it as the exquisite liquid. Roman garum is a distant relative of many of the fish sauces very familiar to modern Vietnamese, Thai, or a number of different Southeast Asian cuisines. It's even thought to be the early ancestor of Worcestershire sauce, which is flavored with anchovy brine, or even Caesar salad dressing, also flavored with anchovies. Although scholars have found a number of different processes or recipes for classical Roman fish sauce, to make your standard Roman garum usually involved placing fish in a briny pickling solution and leaving it to age, sometimes up to two months. This gave the fish time to disintegrate, giving the end solution a particularly fishy and specifically salty taste that could be used as a table sauce or a salt substitute when cooking. You could easily consider it the ketchup, sriracha, or Tabasco of its day. Garum could be found on nearly every table in the Roman Empire, used to flavor everything. High-quality or luxury garum was so prized that it could set your average Roman back as much as a bottle of expensive perfume. Although the ties between garum and modern Asian fish sauce, or even Worcestershire sauce, are easily spotted, given the common fishy ingredients, comparing garum to, say, ketchup is more than just idle speculation. As the linguist Dan Jarofsky author of The Language of Food has shown, our lovable Heinz ketchup may be just fishy garum in disguise. Taiwanese traders in the 16th century encountering Vietnamese fish sauce, which was made according to the exact same process as Roman garum, when they found it in their travels called it ketchup, which in their language simply meant, you guessed it, preserved fish sauce. Loved by the traders, they took the sauce with them, selling it throughout the world. And it was only a matter of time before it reached Britain's shores, sometime probably in the early 1700s. And it was only in Britain that ketchup's fishy main ingredient slowly faded from recipes. And eventually, the term simply referred to any kind of preserved sauce, often made with walnuts or mushrooms, and only rarely with tomatoes. It was only by the mid-19th century that the tomato version of ketchup had caught on in popularity. And it was finally the Great Heinz Corporation that in the early 20th century added the sugar and spices to the tomato recipe to create the ketchup that would capture the hearts and wallets of America. So there you have it, from ancient garum to modern ketchup in five easy steps. 
Keep that in mind the next time you grab that iconic red bottle to dress up your burger or fries. But let's get back to medieval Constantinople. Now, of Garum, beloved the world over, was such a classic of ancient Roman cuisine. What was Leopran's problem with it? After all, let's not forget he was Italian, coming from the northern city of Cremona. Surely, he should recognize a sauce his ancestors consumed by the barrelful? Well, a lot can happen in 500 years. While Constantinople had held fiercely to its classical past, including, of course, the making and using fish sauce, other areas once part of the Roman Empire had changed dramatically. Intense Germanic invasions of Italy, including Rome in the 400s, had fragmented the western territories of the empire. By the time of Liudprand in the 960s, the entire map of western Europe had been redrawn. What had once been a single empire was now a patchwork quilt of small kingdoms and other independent principalities. Take Liuprand's hometown of Cremona in northern Italy, once a powerhouse of the Roman Empire. It now found itself adrift in the volatile world of medieval politics. Cremona, as well as the rest of Italy, had been passed from Roman to Germanic to Byzantine control and back over the past few hundred years with no one able to hold the area for long. Over the years, numerous new peoples had come to settle in the lands. Former Roman citizens now lived cheek by jowl with Germans, Greeks, Spaniards, Africans, and Arabs. By the 900s, Italy was a multicultural community, with many of its residents having little to no connection to classical Rome. So it was with Leoprand. Named for one of the many tribal kings who had invaded Italy over the past few centuries, Liudprand was fundamentally uninterested in the Rome of the past. As both city bishop and the de facto leader of city government, his interest was in securing Cremona's safety, not reviving a long-dead Roman Empire. He looked to the ever more powerful German monarchy as a political ally, just north over the mountains and so he willingly took on the role of their ambassador, which is how he had found himself in Constantinople, facing down barrels of garum at every meal. By the 900s, the food of ancient Rome was no longer in fashion, at least not in northern Italy. With so many waves of settlers, each had brought their own culinary traditions to the peninsula, and over time, many of ancient Roman dishes and cooking styles had been abandoned. The great garum factories of early centuries gradually fell into disuse and disrepair. But we do know at least one product survived the fall of Rome in the West, perhaps one of the pillars of Roman cuisine and arguably civilization itself. Wine. The people of the ancient world loved their wine, and it was traded throughout the Mediterranean. And just like today, regions became famous for their excellent vintages. Wine from Gaza, for example, was considered almost unparalleled in its quality. For hundreds of years, wine dominated the beverage trade. Sure, the Egyptians had discovered the process to brew beer thousands of years ago, but its associations in Rome were enduringly with those of the Germanic northerners and it was largely dismissed as a barbaric beverage. 
whereas the growing of vines and the making of wine was a mark of civilization, at least to the Romans. Seen as healthy and fortifying, wine was the stuff of life. It was also often used as a form of payment for workers. Soldiers in the Roman Empire even were guaranteed a ration of wine as a reward for their service. But what happened when this podcast is brought to you by Simply Light? Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. And those beer-drinking northerners move south, conquering Rome in the 400s. Was that the end of wine drinking in Western Europe? Interestingly, not at all. Many of the Germanic tribes, the Saxons, Franks, and Goths, appeared to have no problem adding wine to their list of preferred alcoholic beverages. Christian monasteries in places like France and Spain continued to grow vines on their lands, taking over from the Roman vintners of old. Saints were frequently planting vines as they converted the masses. Even the Vikings seemingly learned to appreciate the stuff. Attacking monasteries in France in the late 800s, chronicles noted in particular that they were careful to leave the vineyards untouched. But were these new wines of the medieval West the same as the Roman wines of old? It's hard to be sure. Although records of vineyards and the trade of wine are mentioned in documents, few refer to the actual making of wine. So it's extremely hard for historians to figure out whether the wine that was being drunk in the court of Charlemagne resembled anything that would have been had by, say, Julius Caesar. Which takes us back to good old Leoprand in Constantinople. Besides the fish sauce, Leoprand saved most of his vitriol for Byzantine wine. How can these people not fall ill, he wondered in his letters, when they serve brine instead of fine wine? From his arrival in Constantinople, Leoprand blamed the wine for his embassy's failure. It added to our disastrous position that the wine of the Greeks was undrinkable for us because of their commingling pitch, pine sap, and plaster in it. Not exactly a ring endorsement for Byzantine vintages. But what are these briny and plastery wines that Leoprand is referring to? For answers, we rely on one of the few texts that describes the winemaking process in medieval Byzantium, known as the Geoponica. Translated roughly as agricultural pursuits, the text is an encyclopedia of all agricultural knowledge, ranging in topics from how to grow lentils to how to ensure your cow gives milk, the Geoponica also provides some handy tips on how to grow, prepare, and store wine, including a few remedies for killer medieval hangovers. Looking at the Geoponica, it's clear that the wines preferred in Constantinople were much closer to those of ancient Rome than the perhaps changing tastes and styles of Western European wine. The Geoponica, for example, keeps up the tradition of mixing wine with other liquids and substances, notably seawater, a common ancient tactic both thought to prevent wine from spoiling, but also was considered a healthy, low-alcohol beverage good for those working out in the fields. 
For the ancient world, wine spoilage was a perpetual problem, and any method thought to help keep wine fresh was eagerly employed. So that pine sap and plaster Leoprin refers to? Yep, a common ancient tactic thought to help keep the wine from turning to vinegar. True, such methods probably won't show up in next month's edition of Wine Connoisseur, but issues of spoilage without the benefit of modern barreling and refrigeration meant that ancient vintners had to get creative to keep their wine fresh. Vintners kept a wary eye on their wines. Without knowledge of bacteria or yeast, how and why a wine turned sour often remained a mystery, usually ascribed to astrological or weather events. But even if they didn't know what was making their wine go bad, it didn't mean they couldn't identify the signs. Many of the Geoponica's warnings about detecting bad or soured wine are surprisingly similar to modern wine and beer guides, such as finding a white spiderweb-like consistency on the head of your wine as a clear sign of souring. As we now know, that spiderweb look is a result from a specific pellicle, a filmy membrane that can form on the tops of wine or beer after exposure to oxygen. The Bretonomyces pellicle is something that's often added to sour beers or lambics in order to produce that nice puckering taste and feeling. But it can also spontaneously happen in old wine that's had prolonged exposure to oxygen, producing that spiderweb-like consistency on the top. Wine that's been contaminated with Bretonomyces is said to not only taste sour, but also has been described as tasting like a barnyard, even worse, like horse sweat, although I'm not exactly sure how they knew what horse sweat tasted like. Without having to taste it yourself, the Geoponica's advice to watch out for the evil white web was good advice on how to avoid your guests from accidentally puckering up after a glass of wine. But drinking wine without any added ingredient water or otherwise, was actually fairly unusual in ancient Rome. Wine was usually mixed with honey or other herbs and spices, recipes still found in the 10th century Byzantine Geoponica. One is even called the panacea, or cure-all, a beverage that combined wine with aloe, frankincense, and crocus flowers. It's enough to rival some of the cold-pressed juice ingredients so popular today. We'll put some of these mixed wine recipes up on the website, but try them at your own risk. I'm not sure I'll be running out to try pine sap wine anytime soon. And that hangover remedy the Geoponica recommends? Apparently, any morning after effects can be easily cured by simply reciting these lines from Homer. Thrice thundered Jupiter from Ida's heights. Why not try reciting that after a few too many Long Island iced teas? What's evident is that despite having been united for years under the Roman Empire, between Constantinople and Western Europe, a culinary chasm had opened in the 500 years since the empire had fallen in the West, one that perhaps had never been so apparent as during Leopold's embassy in the 960s. Both sides were at a loss to explain the other's apparent bizarre tastes in food and wine. To Emperor Nikiforos, nothing about this German ambassador made any sense. How could an Italian ally himself with the Germans, the very conquerors of beloved Rome? He simply couldn't understand Leoprand. He had offered the very best of Roman cuisine to the ambassador, confident 
he would delight in tasting the best garum this side of Spain. But the ambassador had turned green when presented with the dishes. Well, perhaps he had been tired from the journey. Sea travel was so dangerous this time of year. As a gesture of goodwill, Nikiforos had sent a dish from his own table to the ailing ambassador, one of the highest signs of imperial favor in Constantinople. After all, who could turn down roast goose dressed with high-quality garum? But his servants had told him the dish had gone untouched in the ambassadorial residence. What on earth was going on? The whole thing had come to a head during dinner. Liutprand had been seated, according to imperial custom, at the emperor's table, just past the Bulgarian contingent, themselves representatives of a vast and powerful empire. It had been by the skin of their teeth that the Byzantines had escaped Bulgarian invasion just a few years back. Now an uneasy peace existed between the two parties. Nikiforos needed to keep an eye on the Bulgarian ambassadors, so kept them as close as possible during meals. Now, dinner had been a standard affair. Some of the best wine from the region, as well as golden platters laden with roasted pheasants and peacock, a particular favorite of the emperor's. Each, of course, dressed with the best garum money could buy. As usual, Liutprand was wearing a sour disposition, barely talking to anyone. He had hardly touched his wine or food, and in conversation had sniffed about the superiority of German forces and food to the offerings of Constantinople. Nikiforos could take this no longer. How could an Italian boast about the Germans, those barbarians who had seized Rome, at his table? The emperor just couldn't hold his tongue any longer. You're no Roman. You're a Lombard, he yelled to Liutprand. Lombards were just one of the many barbarian tribes who had settled in Italy in those hazy post-imperial years. To anyone from Constantinople, this was one of the worst insults imaginable. And Nikiforos almost regretted his outburst as soon as he had said it. But he didn't have the time. Liudprand seemed barely disturbed by the remark. To Nikiforos's amazement, the ambassador retorted, you know, the annals speak of that murderous Romulus, who gave his name to Rome, who welcomed runaway slaves, murderers, and debtors to his city, and those they are the people they call the Romans. It's from those people you call yourself an emperor. Meanwhile, Liudprand continued, we the Lombards, Saxons, Franks, Bavarians, and Burgundians so disdain the Romans that we utter no other insult than you Roman, to our enemies. And we understand that the name of the Romans includes every baseness, every cowardice, every kind of greed, lie, and vice. Well, that ended dinner. So thanks to the fish sauce and some salty wine, any possible alliance between Germany and Byzantium was clearly not to be. Liutprand left Constantinople as soon as he was able, returning to his home in Cremona later that year. The German monarch did ask Liutprand to travel to Constantinople once more some years later. But perhaps the thought of all that garum and pine sap wine was too much for him, and Liutprand died en route. 
Not that Nikki Forrest's fate was much better. Having violently seized the imperial throne in his youth, Nikki Forrest's own reign ended in bloodshed. In a plot orchestrated by his wife and her lover, Nikki Forrest was seized one night from bed and decapitated. His head paraded on a spike for weeks afterwards. Not exactly a glorious ending. Also, disputes on religion and politics, not to mention, of course, food, kept relations between Constantinople and many of the Western European monarchies tense for centuries. The Geoponica, however, remained one of the most widely read medieval agricultural and culinary texts, transmitting ancient knowledge to the Byzantines and more widely throughout the Middle East. Translated into Arabic, Syrian, and Armenian, its knowledge traveled throughout the medieval world. Beyond that, of course, the popularity of garum and other varieties of fish sauce remained a staple of many cuisines until the modern day. Echoes of it even found in modern tomato ketchup. In fact, Roman garum itself may be making a bit of a comeback. An Italian product known as colatura di alici, made from fermented anchovies soaked in brine, has been finding new markets all over the world. Often considered to be the closest product to ancient garum, chefs from Spain to Sweden are starting to incorporate it into their dishes. Who knows? The days of Roman garum may be back again. We've only mentioned a few examples from Liutprand and the Geoponica today, but there are full translated editions of both. We'll put links up to both texts on our website, and trust me, they are well worth the read. I also highly recommend checking out Dan Jarofsky's book, The Language of Food, for more great insights into the history and etymology of cuisine. And if you'd like to learn more on ancient and medieval wine, Susan Rose's The Wine Trade in Medieval Europe is an excellent read. We'll also put links up for those on the website. And if you're interested in the etymologies of food or just language in general, the Endless Knot podcast is a great listen. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Special thanks this week go to our great research assistant, Megan Kirby, as well as our stalwart technical advisor and in-house Olympics commentator, Michael Port, who has now memorized all the rules of women's rugby sevens. If you have made any of the recipes from the Geoponica or otherwise, we'd love to see them. Share them with us via our Instagram account at feast underscore podcast. And we're giving out free historical recipes to listeners who review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you access your podcasts. Just leave us a review, take a picture of it, and send it to us at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. And there are still a few tickets left for our Futurist Feast on Saturday, September 10th in Toronto, Ontario. It's an absolute steal at $15 a head. If you haven't heard our Futurism episode yet... We heartily recommend it, and then grab yourself a seat for some innovative Italian cuisine. And if you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on our Patreon campaign, which you can access via our website, thefeastpodcast.org. And if you have any ideas for upcoming shows, always feel free to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. That's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another great meal from the Dining Tables of History. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.
tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.